I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. What's up, everybody? It's your coach. We are back. We're back at it again. It is March the 3rd, March the 3rd, 76th episode of the Coach HP Show. It being Women's Month. Women's Month. It's only fair that we start off the month with a woman. We have on this episode none other than Vanessa Osage. Vanessa is simple. She's on a mission to leave the world a better place than when she found it. Author, advocate, doing so many great things. It's a different interview, it's a different situation, it's a special situation. It's something that I want to, the topic we discuss is something I want to bring to light in all worlds. She's talking about in the school aspect. I'm in the sporting world, majority of the time. And this is something that happened in the gymnastics world, in the women's gymnastic world as of recently. So it plays a lot with today's situations, if you could put it at that. So I hope you really enjoy this episode with Vanessa. Give her support. It's your coach. Let's go. Three, two, one, boom, Vanessa, and we're live. Vanessa, what's a lot of interesting parts about your story. But one thing that I like a lot is the the writing the book factor. I think the book just came out what like a couple weeks ago. Am I correct? Early October. Early October. How, now looking back at it, having it done, guide me through the process and what has been your now reflecting back moment on it, of the whole book thing. How did you think about it? How did you start doing it? Hit me with it. Sure. So let's see. Well, we all know what happened in mid-March. <laughs> right. Um, so I live in Washington state and Governor Inslee did stay home, stay safe orders. I think it was March 23rd. And I had applied to speak with Humanities Washington to do a workshop called Speak Truth to Power. And they had mentioned, so if you do this, you travel around Washington State and you know give talks on this topic. And they had mentioned there that if you had a book, you could sell it. And I thought like, oh, I've always been a writer and I've always wanted to write a book. So that was in the back of my mind. So when we got orders to stay home, stay safe, have food, stay home, you know, it's the perfect discipline. So by, by April 1st, I was I pretty quickly mapped out an outline. Um, and so I was writing in earnest by April 1st. Just wow. Your outline, how many chapters do you have? <laughs> Funny you should ask. <laughs> um, the book's about 450 pages, and I think there are something like 70 chapters. Wow, that's a lot. It is. Some are long and some are fairly short. You know, some of them kind of deep dive and then others are quick. That process for you, did you, what, did you write? A certain amount of day. What discipline did you put on yourself? So I I treated it like a new job. I had a position that disappeared with the pandemic, and so I settled in. And let's see. So 
you know, I, I wrote about this. I do like to create in the wee hours of the night, um, but you know, that's not sustainable long-term. So I just, I would make an outline for the coming day, you know, and I had a work schedule. So I'd get up and morning for me was very much like editing and organizational. Then I would just hit a stride and go and go. And it was amazing because some afternoons, you know, I'd be writing and writing and then by six, it'd be six o'clock suddenly. And I'd think that that was the whole day, you know? And so, wow. Yeah, I kind of got in the zone. And you wrote it out old school, like in a tablet, in a book, in a notebook, or you went on the computer and wrote it? How did you do? A little bit of both. A little um, bit of both? Yeah, the big thing for me was getting big paper and mapping out my ideas and putting them up on the wall. You know, kind of the progression of the themes I wanted to cover. And yeah, I always keep notebooks by my bed and I'm always writing, you know, pen to paper. And so, you said you were a natural writer. You've written before? I've done a lot of writing. This is my first book, Can't Stop the Sunrise. Uh -huh. I was a, a newspaper reporter really briefly. And, you know, really from the age of 10, writing has just been a respite for me, like a place to, to tune into what I'm really thinking and feeling and make sense of the world. And it's always been with me. Vanessa, who'd you get that skill from? Was that from your mom, your dad? Who'd you, who'd you get that from? So I know in a distant way that my mom had an affinity for writing. I'm not sure if it was a direct skill. I, I just feel grateful to have stumbled on it as a form of expression. Like I was a pretty quiet kid. And, um, and I just, I remember the day when I sat down an old fashioned typewriter and wrote about what I'd done and experienced. And it just felt like the world opened up and I could, it was a really easy way for me as a previously quiet kid right. to feel free, you know, and it just, it's hard to know where that comes from exactly. But for me, luckily, it was a door opening. To... It's That's crazy. And you were raised, is it in Boston? North of Boston. North of Boston, right? Yeah. I have a feeling I'm, I'm Cuban from Miami. Yeah. Everybody I feel that is from up north is automatically smarter than me. Because you guys up there, you have so cultural and your stuff. It's Down here is very different for me. But growing up. I know the boarding school experience that started you on this different journey, special yeah. journey. Were your parents involved in you growing up? Was it normal for kids to go to boarding school? Well, I have to say real quick, I like that you bring up that you're Cuban. And so my parents actually met in Miami. They were at Miami Dade Junior College and they were 19 each and married. Mm -hmm. So, you know, my roots in New England are fairly recent. You know? So my folks were Southern. Um, and so... Let's see. I just wanted to mention, you know, that Dude, I, I went to, I played baseball for Miami Dade Community College. So there you go. <laughs> There's a connection. Um, yeah. So I feel really touched in with that culture, you know, and hearing about, about that. Um, and my yaya, my Greek grandmother lived in Florida, you know, forever. Oh yeah. What part of Florida? She was in Fort Pierce. So on the yeah. way, on the Atlantic. A little bit higher, but I think, I think Fort Pierce is on the West coast of Florida. I can't remember if it's the Gulf side or the Atlantic side. I want to say it's the Atlantic. Yeah? Yeah. Fort yeah. Pierce. I've, I've heard of it, but I've never been to, to Fort Pierce. <laughs> your journey of your life. Mm -hmm. Do you look at it like everything happened for a reason? Do you look at it like it became your life mission? Because I, in doing research of you, I couldn't find. I know you like called out people doing bad stuff. You had that done to you. Were you a victim of sexual abuse yourself or no? So I have a strong feeling about that word. I had an experience with, with a, okay. 
of my school. Um, so what I what we discovered, and it was the, the tricky thing about it, I, the experience that feels more impactful for me is kind of the systemic institutional abuse. And even my encounter with this employee, you know, it had, I always, I used to say that, um, you know, abuse of power was the overtone and sexual abuse was kind of the undertone. It was very deception based. Right. You know, so it wasn't a direct point for point. It was, you know, someone who was apparently in a position of caring for kids, kind of tricking kids into situations that you thought, oh, this doesn't seem right. So I encountered that as like a 14, 15 year old. What was more profound was then what unfolded, you know, as a friend came to me and said, oh, he's, this guy's been doing similar things to me. And when someone messes with someone I love, you know, you just don't tolerate that. Right, <laughs> so right, right, right. The two of us went down there and um, so we confronted him, you know, and I spoke to him, you know, what you're doing is wrong. You have no right to act this way. And my boyfriend at the time was aware and he waited outside with his dad, you know, just to back us up. Um, the thing that was really fascinating was it was just this really small entryway into seeing this really big picture of you know, silencing and complacency and so the quick version there is that um, when we confronted him, I had absolute faith that when the adults found out, they would do what everybody kind of understood was the right thing. Um, what they did instead was to choose to keep him employed, living on campus. And when I kept asking what was going to happen, um, and the answer was essentially nothing, they soon revoked my financial aid and sent me away. Um, the thing, when you ask me about, do I think of my life does everything that everything happens for a reason? I do have a lot of faith in these big things that happen. If we choose to respond to them in such a way, they can be powerful turning points for for making positive change. You know, so I had a choice there, right? Like they send me away, don't don't talk about this, you know, hush hush. But to that I say no, you know. And so, you know, and there's more to the intricacies of the story in my education. But I kept coming back because I couldn't, I wasn't going to accept leaving that reality in my wake, right? That, that like these people know there's a child molester on campus and new kids are coming in every year and they don't know, but I know, you know, so I ran away to the West Coast and kept coming back and saying, hey, we have to do something about this. Vanessa, did you tell anything to your parents at all? So I did not talk to my parents. Um, I lived at school that year, um, my second year. And we weren't close, you know, they had, the, I think the, the best way to look at it is they had too many kids too close together. And they just How many kids did your parents have? Five. So my, it's funny, it's so crazy. So I'm the biggest failure in the history of Miami baseball by far. I'm also a, a victim of sports abuse. My dad used to beat the shit out of me for not being good at baseball, like brutally bad. And everybody knew it was going on, even my mom. But it's weird because... As I looked at it, and I'm curious when you saw what, how you felt, I'd always felt my life was going to have a purpose, and I was going through that for a reason. And when, when somebody's doing that to you at a real young age, talking about like five, six, seven, all the way almost to high school, you either become that or you fight away from that. And I'm a lover, not a fighter. I took the whole different approach of my mindset, and I became extremely positive and I was able to, that I knew I was going to get out of that. But for a guy, it's weird because I always looked at it, look, at least I wasn't in a sexual abuse situation. Yeah. And the guy thing, it's almost like they hide under it because like, it's like, hey, toughing up the boy or whatever it is, you know. How did you see yourself while you were going through that? 
Wow. Well, you just spoke to so many powerful things. <laughs> um, so the, your question though, how did I see myself when I was going through that? The first thing that comes to mind is just confusion. You know, you don't really have context and, and kind of the intentional isolation in the response of it. You know, the message of like, this isn't. So really the way I saw myself, it was kind of an opportunity to start trusting my inner truth as it met the contrast of what people around me were doing and saying, right? I mean, really it felt like it turned the world upside down. Like everything you think you know about adults and the right order of things suddenly didn't line up. And so there's this massive confusion about what is this world, you know? And, right. and there was a dark period following that. Like, is this really all there is, you know? <laughs> like, is this how the world truly works? And I think I write about it in my book. I, I developed a ritual where I would, um, so by the time I had a license in a car, I bought my own car when I was 17. And uh, I would get in the car before the sun came up and drive to the coast of New Hampshire. And then I'd walk the beach at sunrise and just really imagine like it's an Eastern shore, right? So I could watch the sun coming up before I had to go to school. And I would just think it's gotta be more than this. And, you know, I hadn't seen more of the world yet, but it was just this practice of like, I know what feels true and right to me. And sure, all the adults around me, you know, yeah, all the adults around me aren't acting in a way that lines up with that, but it's gotta be better than this. <laughs> it's so funny you said that, dude, because when I used to walk outside my, I didn't, I, I didn't have a car at 17. I didn't get that lucky, but I used to walk outside my house and walk the, just the, as, as I had to take out the trash or something like that and walk in front of my house and think to myself, there's a whole world out there. Nice. There's a whole world out there. I, I was enslaved because of baseball. And what I tell people is growing up in, you're a baby. What with me growing up in the eighties and the nineties, when you don't have a TV in your room and your dad, who's your, everything is doing this to you and you're stuck with him 24 seven. Cause my dad wanted me next to him 24 seven. The only place you can escape is your head. Yeah. And I learned how to apply this mindset. And I don't know if you agree with this or not, but I share with people that my dad prepared me for everything in life except to deal with him. Wow. Right? So yeah. How crazy is that, right? I see like the beauty the, in it. Yeah. It's, the, it's the craziest thing in the world, right? With you right now, because you show a lot of great examples of not only positivity, but of like real genuine positivity. Not like this fake like, well, you know, I'm going to have a, 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 a good orange juice and the sun's going to rise and everybody's going to be happy. But just like real stuff of writing, journaling, stuff like that. Do you notice that in yourself? Mm, I appreciate the reflection. I I do my best. And I want to say really quick, I know you mentioned me being a baby. Tomorrow, the 19th of December, is my 43rd birthday. You're 43? <laughs> That's right. Look at you. <laughs> you got so lucky. <laughs> just checking in on that one. So... How does it feel to be 43? Hold on. No, 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 we're not going to let that go. How do you feel? Are you feel happy? Are you, are you good with that? How do you feel? Well, tomorrow is the official day. And I, I feel like I rock the, I think the forties are rocking, you know, like right. when, especially when I turned 40, I was like, that's right. 40, bring it on. Like I felt like I had more effectiveness in the world behind me in my forties, you know, just by virtue of validity or um, yeah. So 43, we'll see how tomorrow feels. I feel, I feel ripe to the world and like I'm able to achieve more and more. Do you have any special plans for tomorrow? 
I do. So I'm going to be building a campfire <laughs> and uh, outside my home and a handful of friends are going to come by in succession, you know, to be COVID safe. So I'm going to put out the camp chairs and they'll sit down. And I actually invited them to just let me listen because I've been doing so much talking you know, about my story. And um, so I want to have, I just want to let my friends like have them, let me see them and hear them and tell me what's really been going on. And yeah. It's funny you said you've been doing a lot of talking, right? Which means you've been doing a lot of interviews, a lot of shows, this whole thing. What makes a good podcast, in your opinion? What makes a good interview? Because I'm sure you've done some that you've been like, wow, this is horrible. Or maybe, wow, like, man, this is not really going anywhere. Or just what makes a good one, in your opinion? Thank you for asking. I think I've been, unfortunately, I don't think I've had that thought yet. I listen to podcasts, too. And it, the one thing that comes to mind is... um you can feel authenticity, you know, and that's something like when I can achieve that in a conversation with someone that feels potent. And likewise, when I hear it in a conversation, so like when people are willing to be real and, you know, connect on some honest level, that's where I start to feel the power. I love you said that. I'm a big advocate that I think, Vanessa, in high school, we should eliminate 70% of the maths. I think we should get rid of Algebra, for sure. We should never do algebra. We didn't even talk about that. Calculus, all these weird things, unless you want to be like a physicist or something like that, right? And I think we should put in, especially for men, communication 101, empathy, feelings, vulnerability, <laughs> a lot of things that get we don't even talk about. So what happens is you get these guys that are... I was six feet two in high school. I looked like a man already. My brain was somewhere so far away and nobody had any empathy for me because the way I looked and what I, and I think that's a big problem. You now that you I, have been on this journey. Do you notice any of that, that we don't just prepare people for like the real things in life? Well, it's, it's great that you bring that up because that's been one of my passions for the past decade is I've been a sexuality educator I was trained through Planned Parenthood, and yet I've earned the trust in this town to have done what I called soulful sexuality education. So honestly, some of my, I believe some of my most impactful work has been with middle school boys. And, you know, I had three brothers, so it's, it's like a real easy connection for me. But those skills you're talking about, it's been part of my mission to help impart those and, and guide young men and, and reset a value. Like, I, it's just, it means so much to hear you say that, you know, the value of like empathy and communication and, and how to move through failure. I mean, all of those threads go through my work, like in the sex ed, and then even in this institutional reform effort. You know? What a coincidence. This is awesome. I could talk to you all day. So let's talk about what you saw as a, what is it? Sex ed? Is that what you say it is? I've been a sexuality educator. Yeah. Is that what you are? Is that okay? When you did that in the middle school. What were the most common problems you saw with mm. boys? Well, the thing that I remember most was watching that age, that middle school age, and I could see them already grappling with these messages and how they were supposed to be and putting up a front of, you know, with all respect to my, my former students. The thing I remember most about doing sex education with middle school boys was how strong the urge was to communicate I don't really think to me, but to the group, like, I don't need this. I'm good, you know? And even just the idea that they're compelled to, to communicate that they don't need help or support or insight was, was sad for me. The idea 
You, you know what I'm saying? I see exactly what you're saying. What, what I noticed a lot, Vanessa, was so I started in the, I have a huge journey, but let me take you recently. So I came back, I was born in Cuba, went to Spain, Miami, failed miserably in Miami. Like you, I went to the West Coast. I lived in a car for uh -huh. six months in Los Angeles, in the Hollywood Hills. I spent six years in Los Angeles. Then I went four years to Las Vegas, and I came back to Miami to become Coach HP, who I'm known now. As I got in the baseball world, the man upstairs and the journey put me in the youngest in the T-ball era, which is kids two, three, four, five, right? So I started to notice... And I thought it was a Miami thing till I started to travel to speak and people come and people told me, no, 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 this is a nationwide thing. But I'm curious to get your opinion on this. I started to notice that because I live in Miami and Miami being the town that it is and because the influx of immigrants and being sexy and competing and all these weird things that really don't matter. I started to notice that a lot of guys hooking up with women, having kids don't really want to be with the women. Now we're stuck with the kids. A lot of half the men bail out. Half the men are working to pay for a lifestyle. They can't support all these things, right? When they had a young kid, five-year-old, three-year-old, four, they would come to practice. And I noticed, Vanessa, the moms would hold the kid's hand in a safe place. I'm talking about the parking lot, the safe place. Hold the kid's hands, carry the kid's equipment carry the kids water, carry their other sibling in their hand, and the little kids walking like, la, 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 like life is great, right? Now, they don't do that to their daughters. Why? Because I think, and this is why you're the key person to talk about this, I think it's universally known that we don't want women to get run up on. So everybody would love their daughter to be Beyonce, independent, fiery, like have a voice, that kind of thing. But with the boys, it's different. With the boys, a lot of women don't have that male affection thing. So they end up giving it to the boys. And the young boys who are smart end up taking that to their advantage and using that little victim, oh, I don't know, mentality. And that love that got placed in them, instead of having them deal with failure, adversity, all these things, conflicts that make us special, They crumble. Mommy, help. Mommy, help. And it's cute at five. It's horrendous at 25. <laughs> do you see any of that? Yeah, I do. Now I, now I, the picture's coming together, what you're talking about. So I heard, I have a friend who had two boys as a mother, right? And she found this research that we just don't touch our boys as much. So that's one quick thought that came to mind, which you know has its own line of thinking. But When it comes to, I mean, what I'm hearing you say with that story, and it took me a while to piece together this dynamic you're describing, um, you know, the privilege that men assume and, you know, live in, I think does have some early roots in kind of, there's a coddling aspect of it. And, and I'm not sure because I'm not raising a son and I haven't done that. I have younger brothers, you know, so that's my, my closest insight. But the way I look at all this, honestly, is um, the way we value certain skills, right? Do we value the skill of the boy being able to say like, hey, wow, I was so scared in that moment. And that thing that I said, that was such a mistake. I apologize. You know, 
those kinds of skills that like repair intimate connections, that's huge, you know, and that's the stuff that I loved conveying to these middle school boys. And, you know, not all of them did the like, oh, I don't need this. You know, there were some who were just really grateful and like, wow, that was so helpful. I do think there's a skill set, like an interpersonal skill set that has been undervalued in the raising of boys that has, yeah, not only set up, you know, women and other men to be disadvantaged, you know, with your story with your dad, and we don't know, you know, I don't know his whole story or what those influences were. We do know that a lot of violence is enacted by men, right? And on some level, I believe that the violence is just a, a backload of shame and an inability to deal with emotions, you know, and not knowing who's responsible for what. But to not cultivate those interpersonal repair skills in boys and a kind of self-sufficiency of like emotional self-care, like, wow, I'm feeling really hurt. What do I need? You know, how do I take care of myself so I can be present for my family and my partner? You know, I know men who are doing some of that work with other men, but culturally, I think we have a lot of quick catching up to do. And I think that's a tie in also to the, the whole institutional reform. You know, if you take that lack of those skills and build a whole, say, private school around it, then you get that playing out when things happen versus if you can insert a different valuing of skills, being present, being honest and vulnerable, admitting that you made a mistake and realizing you still have value. In fact, like the ability to say, whoa, I messed up. How do I make this right? That's a huge value. To me, that's strength, you know? So I think it's like, how do we look at strength and masculinity and how do we weave that into relationships and, you know, good on the parents who are working to raise their boys with those skills now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then also you mentioned a funny thing. You said you're the, are you the youngest of five? So I'm actually the second born and I'm the oldest girl. You're the so oldest girl. So my dad's the youngest of 15. So that probably explains a lot. Yeah. That explains a lot. Living in Washington, Washington seems like it's, I've heard great things about Washington. How has that shaped your mindset, your lifestyle now? It's hmm. a good question. I mean, for me, the significance, because I, yeah, I didn't, I didn't know this about your story and I'm grateful to know, you know, I left home at 18 and traveled a lot across the country, like many times in my twenties, just seeing the world. And By yourself? Uh-huh. Yeah. That was kind so of you fun. alone, you alone. Yeah. Me alone in my car. I'd put on a baseball hat at night and sleep in the back seat under gray blankets. And this was how I. Was that a Boston Red Sox baseball hat? <laughs> it was not. It was an Arco gas station baseball so okay wait, wait, so no no we got to talk about this okay, okay so you would by yourself get in a car yeah what type of car i've had many of them over the years there were a lot of little volkswagens toyota trucks were the, the stuff you know? um, i slept in a toyota corolla that's why so okay. this is this is important yeah, so yeah. you would get in a car and where was your first where did you drive to and what was your goal that's the thing. That was the unique thing about my 20s. This was how I dealt with the pain of being displaced for speaking up. Was I Like I was saying about the, the beach in New Hampshire, like I needed to see that there was more to the world than the corruption and the secrecy that was at my high school. So really, I just set out without destination. I generally was coast to coast, you know, east to west, just to, I traveled without destination. Um, and it was a really amazing practice i'm trying to remember your original question too don't worry about that you just took over with going listen we, we're, we're now going we're, we're following you coast so okay so you leave right yeah and you i'm just gonna go all right so you obviously got to put gas 
Yep. How far west did you go? Well, so I've actually, I've, I've traveled to all 48 contiguous states across the country, coast to coast, 12 times. Um, oh, my God. Yeah, it was a unique life experience in my 20s. You know, so my career follows a different trajectory. But I was, you know, I'd be writing and meeting people and, um, yeah, just making my way. How would I, you meet people? You know, just what, going to little gatherings and things. I remember I, ran, I write about it in the book. I ran out of money in New Orleans. Um, and my grandfather was Spanish, actually, and he had lived in New Orleans. Um, Spanish so, from Spain? Yes, Spanish from, from Spain. No way. On your dad's side or mom's side? Nice. Look at that. Yeah. So I, when I ran out of money in New Orleans, um, it was really how I learned to kind of manage and really be independent. But I worked at the youth hostel to pay my stay, you know, so I got a little bit of income and then free room and board. Right. Um, but yeah, I'm remembering now you asked me how I like living in Washington. <laughs> so what's significant for me was like it took me a long time to shift that lifestyle. You know, I'd settle in pick a little town on the West Coast that had a junior college, study, work, save up money, and then go travel the country again. So it took me a long time to kind of break out of that. And when I got to Washington a little over 13 years ago, um, it was really intentional. You know, like this was a place I was going to make my home. And now that I've chosen a place to be able to kind of stop traveling away from and give back, it's been so satisfying to like to really cultivate a new hometown. So it kind of fits nice. long arc of like leaving home at, at 18 and how I lived and managed in my 20s. And then that shift. So when I was, I think I was just about 30 when I got to Washington, right? 13 years. Vanessa, of the 48 states, is Washington your favorite state? It's the most resonant to who I am and the, like the environment where I want to be. You what's know, the environment like? Okay, what's the environment for you? So it's, it's lush and green and there's some, what does lush mean? Lush, lush is like, to me, there's like, there's moisture in the land and the tree and the trees and, um, yeah, kind of vibrant with natural plant life. Um, yeah. So it's, it's, and I really love having the Gulf islands right here. You know, I traveled into Canada in my, my twenties and just fell in love with this. It's got, it's got a wildness about it that, that calls to me. So nice. it is home. It feels really good to have, you know, chosen and devoted. Like I'm, de I'm committed to this place. You know, so it, it means a lot to, <clears throat> excuse me, stay put and <clears throat> be at home. When you, when you were driving from place to place, I tell people that I tell my story mm -hmm. that I didn't have the social media wasn't around. Well, I'm 41, so That's social media wasn't around <laughs> when when I was living in the Hollywood Hills. So I couldn't go on YouTube and motivate myself, whatever. So it was like some books, I'm not a big reader, some books and the radio. What were you listening to as you drove around? Yeah, that's funny. I write about that too because, um, yeah, there's a little story where I met this guy in Arizona, you know, and I'm like, oh, I told him I was just traveling without destination. He's like, well, hopefully you have a good stereo system in that car. I was like, oh, I haven't turned on the radio for three days. <laughs> you know? So it was, it was all thinking. You were all thinking. Well, a lot of it was just kind of a quiet, a moving meditation. And I had a lot to process, you know, like all the things I'd seen back east. And um, so, I mean, I don't, as far as what I was listening to, I think I just had a lot. I was writing a lot and meditating a lot. I do remember, you know, I did a lot of radio scanning. You'd kind of get a feel for the region. Like, I remember all the Middle America church radio, 
you know, like the, the fun, like Creole stuff in the South and Appalachia. Yeah, I mean, in a way, I, I let myself kind of browse the local music through their radio. Nice. It's another layer to know a place. What is your favorite type of music? So, gosh, I mean, bluegrass comes to mind. I love Who's your favorite bluegrass person? Mm, my favorite bluegrass person. I don't know if I've got a favorite. Um, a friend yesterday was just sharing some artists, and I was listening last night to Coulter Wall. Kind of okay. like a pretty, like, I don't know where he's from exactly, but it's just like that that kind of country. Um, yeah, there's a grittiness about about that that I appreciate. And I like some soul music, like Nina Simone. And um, I just listened to Sam Cooke. You know, it's been long. All right. All right. I like it. I like it. <laughs> I got a mix, yeah. As you look at your future now, yeah. how do you see it? If you could have your way, mm. how would you... What would you be doing in the future? Wow, thanks for asking. Well, that's a segue back to the amends project and my work at transforming the corruption that I've witnessed and confronted all these years. So I, um, I started a state nonprofit, the amends project. Over the last three years, and the whole story's in the book, I created this initiative for transparency and reform. So my big mission now is to change the systemic abuse and corruption, starting with private high schools. Um, so I created this thing called the Justice Corps Initiative. I actually had a sports metaphor I wanted to share with you. you Let's do it. Sports metaphor? Okay, so I played soccer in high school. Um, and so if you, to just kind of explain the situation. So you imagine there's a soccer game, right? But, and we all kind of know the rules of a certain game, but there's a, a game within the game, right? And so some of these defense players have decided that they can, you know, like when the the other team's coming toward them to make a goal, they can kick them in the shin and get away with it, right? And the, the thing is like the ref is in on it too, right? Like maybe he's waged money on the game and he, or it's his, his kid who's on the team. And so if the, you know, if the person who's kicked in the shin calls foul, they're like, oh, get him out of here. He's always complaining, you know, and they get rid of him. And so they get this advantage, right? By having this kind of game within a game. And so, um, that, you know, all of that is kind of like a metaphor for what's been going on in, like we hear the stories, you know, about like in the church, kind of like weak self-policing. Unfortunately, in these private boarding schools, they've had these kind of inner systems. And so what I wanna do with the Justice Corps is basically to bring in these groups of non-affiliated adults to be another witness. And so they're watching the game. So if you imagine it's like a local game, right? And there's something going on. Maybe people wonder why people keep getting off the field that way. Um, but what we want to do is like bring in people from different towns to come and, and bear witness to the game. And when they see something off, you know, they're watching the ref too. And if the ref is like, oh, whatever, get that kid out of here, you know, they're like, oh, excuse me, ref, that, that was out of line, you know? And so hopefully that's kind of conveying the idea is that when something bad happens in these schools, if the kids go to someone within the school, there's all this pressure to keep quiet. And, you know, there's all these disproportionate justice, right? Like there's a lot of, well, it depends on who it was who got hurt. And it's a, it depends on who it was who did the, the hurting. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's like, as a society, if you look at school, it's like a core segment, even religion or any of these places as core segments of society. If they've got this kind of systemic injustice rolling through them, 
that's weakening us as a country. So what I want to do for my future, I've established this state nonprofit. I've created the Justice Corps. I've you know, designed it and done all this planning with people for years. I want to raise enough money to have um, this nonprofit accelerator tides, basically pick up my state nonprofit and be the organizational and fiscal management of it. Um, and so then I've got oversight on the work and they help with fundraising. And so I want to bring that model to the first two willing schools ASAP. I mean, I've been, that's part of really writing the book is advancing that initiative. And I've got all these great connections with like the National Association of Independent Schools and the boarding school people. I just need to raise enough money to have this fiscal sponsorship so that we have 501c3 status and just be doing that full time and, you know, and go. That is awesome. That is awesome. Did you do an audio book also for your book or not yet? I did. Actually, we're we're just going through quality check with um with ACX. So it'll pop up. We had what three edits we just found the other day. So my audio engineer guy, James Dunstone at Rafiki Music, he's um he's doing the edits probably right now. <laughs> and then we resubmit it to Audible. So it'll if you go to vanessaosage.com, my author website, it'll when it's ready, I'll have the link there. That is awesome. How do you view social media? Do you think you're using it enough? Are you comfortable with it? How how is that? How do you view that? Yeah, funny you asked. Like how you said, you know, it wasn't around and for you in LA. I'm a I'm a very late adopter to social media. I kind of look like so. I'm catching some of it right now. Do I use it enough? So I do want to say, you know, so in, it was 2018. I joined LinkedIn, and that's my you know that's how late I am to that game. Like Facebook totally just passed me by, and um, so I'm doing that. And then I opened a Twitter, for, basically for me and the book in this effort. Right. The fundraising campaign we've got now, somebody I did an interview and he's like, if you had a hashtag, what would it be? And I had to think about that and kind of understand. Um, so the hashtag that I think identifies really my life and this work is truth heals. So nice. yeah, because that's really the, the heart of it. You know, like if we're trying, if they're trying to silence people and what happened, it goes one way. But when someone speaks the truth, that's so powerful for people and that changes systems. Um, so yeah, there's the GoFundMe is the hashtag Truth Heals, ending systemic abuse and corruption. Um, and I'm I'm doing my best to learn social media and get support. I know it's a powerful tool, and right. I have to kind of bring myself back to check in on it. It's it's enabled some really great connections, and I'm willing to utilize it, you know, as a tool to get this initiative going as soon as possible. I love that. Are you on Instagram also, or no? Not on Instagram. Mm -mm. Just LinkedIn and Twitter. All right. Safe one. Professional. Very professional. I like it. I like it. I like it. Yeah. Vanessa, I think I think you've already done tremendous work. I think you're just starting. You have a great future ahead of you. I hope the book sales are, are through the roof. I hope your message gets out. I hope you get your school and you get your stuff where you get to get the word out. Before I let you go, anything for me? Anything I can help you with? Any question for me? Oh, that's great. Um, let's see, anything in particular from you? I mean, I, I, the, all I've really got is gratitude. I mean, I'm, I'm grateful just to get to know a little bit of your story and see the spirit with which you're doing this work, you know, how far you've come and, and thank you for, you know, giving a new message from what you talk about failure to transformation. I found just that's so powerful and I'm 
grateful to bring my story and see where it intersects with your story. And yeah, thanks for being part of spreading this message. I love it. I love it. Listen, I'm not as intellectual as the usual podcast you're on. The My vocabulary is a little bit lower, but the passion, <laughs> Vanessa, makes up for that, okay? Oh, that's all that matters. <laughs> it all I, <laughs> dude, I, I wish you a very happy birthday tomorrow. Thank you. I hope you don't get to say a word and you get a lot of listening in. <laughs> That's great. All right. Thank you so much, Coach. All right. Have a good day, okay? Right. Really good talking to you. You too. Thanks. Okay. Bye. Bye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.